We're going to return to the 15th chapter of the book of Matthew. And again, I think there's, you know, as I have gone through this over and over and over again, there's just so many, I guess you could say, sweet moments that um, have come out. And this this is one of them. It's one of those that, again, it's kind of, as I was going through in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we were looking at those principles that I guess I have looked at so clinically in the past. You know, judge not lest ye be judged. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. You know, those kind of things. You look at them very clinically, very theologically in that way. Um, but how, when we've been going through this, there's been a very, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but as I've been going through this, and as we have been kind of steeping ourselves in this, um, there's so much more personal, I don't know, application to it. So much more kind of relational, personal level stuff, not clinical, theological, but like one-on-one, human to human. I mean, I, I, I know I've said it multiple times, but as we would go back over and over again about loving your enemies, that has been one of the I guess most profound things that has really weighed on me throughout all of these 15 chapters and all of these, whatever, what are we on? 18, 20 something months that we've been doing this, um, that, that there's a, there's a relationship. There's a personal aspect of this, you know, that, that sets us apart. You know, we, we want to say that we're set apart from the world because we come meet at this building every Sunday or because we, you know, we don't cuss or because we don't watch bad movies or, you know, all these really goofy, mild, moralistic things. But what Christ was trying to impress upon his followers that set them apart was love. I mean, that's what Brother Charles was talking about a few weeks ago, that that's how you would they would know you were my disciples was that you loved, not necessarily by what you said. You know, I'm not like going out there and say, let's all go cuss like a sailor, but because we love people, we're, okay, you know, there's a, there, we've been talking about holiness in Leviticus too, okay? We can get some holiness up in here and talk about that as well. But but what he's, the, the, the defining characteristic was of love, and it was of love of everybody. It was love of every people group, every neighbor every enemy every i mean there was just this profound love that that's what would mark us that's what set us apart and if you think about it that's such a simple thing but that is the most profound defining characteristic of followers of christ versus everyone else in the world is that whereas you would see a world where people have no problem being consumed by hatred in fact they design their lives around it Christ was saying, no, your life is going to be completely designed around your profound love for people who you don't even know. And in fact, some people who hate your guts. And so this is another one of those examples. We got through last week talking about the hypocrisy of the Jewish elites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of these people who had a good show of religion, but their hearts were hard. They were turned away from God. They hated Jesus. They were not believers. They sought their own... Uh, glory versus the glory of God. I mean, over and over again, Christ would say, if you knew the Father, you would believe in me. But you don't. And that's because you don't know the Father. And, you know, just testifying to them. But, man, they looked good with religion, didn't they? I mean, they had great religious etiquette, all right, if you want to go that route. And that's why he calls them hypocrites. You look well on the outside, but you're rotten on the inside. You draw nigh to me with your mouth, and you honor me with your lips, but it's all a bunch of vain lip service. You're doing it for your own glory. You're praying on street corners, not because you truly seek humble contrition at the feet of Jesus, but because you seek people to praise you for how awesome and pious you are. Um, and I mean, that's just what he gets on them over and over again. And then he makes the point about it's not what's, you know, this, this traditional thing they're, they're tagging you on. That's not what defiles someone. Your defilement is from the inside and that that's where your treatment has to begin. If you want to create, if you want to create changes in the external actions, you have to fix the internal problem. Again, that's like. Anything that we do, you know, if, and this is, I know right after lunch we're going to talk about this, but, you know, if you want to treat vomiting, okay, you have to fix the internal problem, right? 
Why are you throwing up? Well, there's a virus. Well, let's fix that because I can just keep you, you know, I can put a rag in your mouth. I can stop the external all I want to. I can fix the external. Everybody's going, oh my gosh, thank you for that analogy. But you could. You can fix the external all you want to. If you don't get to the root problem, you're going to keep throwing up, okay? I love in all the discussions I have with patients about side effects, you know, they'll come up and be like, oh, well, I heard that this was going to give me cancer and this was going to make my eyeballs fall out and my hair turn purple and all this. My most, my top of of the list, my most favorite side effect, besides some of the chemo drugs that Sebastian tells me about that makes me just cringe, my favorite side side effect of all is the fact that your nausea medicine, the medicine you're going to take for nausea to keep you from being nauseous says a side effect is Nausea and vomiting. Now, if that doesn't get you, that just shows you how depraved and awful this world is. I mean, I can't think of anything else. But you can fix the external. You can fix the external just with training. The internal, the internal, the root, the problem will still be there. So you have to go after the heart. And that's what he says, that it is the heart that matters. That it is the heart that defiles a man, and out of the heart proceeds the things that the mouths say, and the eyes see, and the ears hear, and the mind thinks upon. That all comes from the heart. So get at the heart, you'll get at the problem. Well, now he picks up in chapter 15, verse 21, it says, Then Jesus, oh, and caveat, last time when I was talking, I said... In the beginning of this, when when they were landing, they landed in the area of Gennesaret, okay? And, and that's over in Mark that you find that, that they, or no, 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 it's, it's at the end of um, 14 that it talks about that they reached the other side. They had gotten on the ocean. They were from the east side of Galilee. They went to the west side. They went to Gennesaret, which is on the west coast, okay? I had spoken of it as Gadaria, not the same place. Gadaria is east coast, okay? That is Decapolis. That's one of the areas of the Decapolis. That's east coast of Galilee. They were going across to the west coast. He fed the 5,000 over here on the east coast, and then he went over to the west coast to Gennesaret, okay? Gennesaret is over on the west coast. There is when he first got in and he laid hands on all those people that were sick and, you know, he, they touched their garments. So, caveat on that. Now, as he leaves from there in verse 21, it says, Then Jesus went thence and departed in the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Now he has gone northwest. He's gone to the east coast, again, of the Mediterranean, all right? So now we have moved on from Galilee and we've moved northwest into Tyre and Sidon. We've moved in the area of the southern border of kind of Syria and what would be Turkey and all that today. So that's where we're at, northwest, uppermost portion of the land that would have been Israel, greater Israel, okay? So he moves to the west over to Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered her and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great, great, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. I want to read Mark's account as well so we can put the two together. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, he says this, And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no and would have no man know it. He wanted to come in in secret and hide out, and he could not be hid, obviously. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. This woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she sought him that he would cast out the devil out of her daughter. 
But Jesus said to her, let the children first be filled, for it is not meat to take the children's bread and to give it to dogs. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. And then again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came under the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. Okay, so that's where we get back to Decapolis. So he left from the northwest after this, and he traveled back down along the east side of Galilee into the area of Decapolis again. That will be important as we go forward. Now, this is the neat thing about this. So location-wise, we're northwest portion of Israel. We're east coast of the Mediterranean. Tyre and Sidon were two cities that sat on the coast kind of up there in the northwest, okay? These are borderlands to Syria. These are primarily Gentile lands, okay? These are lands that, again, like Decapolis down on the southeast corner of Galilee, these were lands that were made up with a lot of Gentiles. The northwest area up here would have also had a lot of Samaritans, okay? Now, the Samaritans, which, as we've all learned in any of our uh, Bible history, you know, the Samaritans were kind of the leftovers from the split of Israel, okay? So, you had the northern 12 tribes. It was up in the region of Samaria that, uh, that uh, Jeroboam, right? Jeroboam went up into the north, and he's the one that established the altars to the calf at Dan, which was right up above Bethlehem, or right up above um, Jerusalem, thank you, right up above Jerusalem, and then also up into the northwest, he landed in the area of Samaria, and that's where he established his, uh, his palace there, and that's where he also established another um, site for the worship of the calf god. Now, this land was obviously, over time, and the people thereof, were extremely ostracized. You know, you had Judah down south that was still kind of but not really keeping to the Jewish religion. You had the northern tribes that had completely fallen off the rails. They still kept to the Jewish religion somewhat too. They just mixed it a whole heavily a lot with the pagan rituals that they had been accustomed to in that land. Now, all of that together, you have a group of people who, as we fast forward and we see in the New Testament, these people were dogs and were worthless, and they, they did not like them at all, okay? So you had a Gentile that was already looked at as an unclean person. Then you had a Samaritan who was not just an unclean person. They were a dog. They were the stray dogs, not even a house pet. They were a stray, filthy animal. And if you've ever been into a foreign country, unlike here where we are dog crazy okay and i'm just i'm sorry if you got one of those schnicker badickle doodles or whatever that they they crossbreed into these goofy weird mixes okay that we have an, a, an obsession with dogs that we love dogs we hold dogs we cradle dog dogs are our baby and i know some dogs that are written in wills okay now that's okay if that's your thing if I'm going to pick between a dog and a cat, I will take a, a bursnickel doodle way over a cat any other day. All right. Give me the most doodlest doodle dog of all. Don't give me a cat. But that being said, we, we, we inhabit these, these animals inhabit our lives. Okay. We love dogs. All right. I mean, there you go. We got a dog, you know, it's, it's one of those things. You don't do that in foreign countries, all right? Most of the time, in, in most countries, and anywhere I've been to, you go down to Honduras, dogs were not pets. Dogs actually, I mean, they're mangy, nasty, disease-ridden animals, and they're run off. Um, most of the places you go to in Africa, again, it's not come up here, poochie, let me pet you, let me hold you. No, it's get away, run you off, beat you with a stick. You know, they're, they're animal animals, you know? It's like hyenas or any other kind of rabid you know, outdoor mongrel pets, you run them off, all right? You know, there's, there's no bersnickel doodles in, in Tanzania that I ever saw. But here, the, the, the Samaritans, all that being said, the Samaritans were referred to as dogs. And that's not a poodle. That is a stray, mangy, nasty animal, okay? But notice what has happened there. They're not human. They're not human. They are less than humans. That's at the heart of, of, of any kind of racial animosity that has ever existed 
is the beginning stages of all that is the dehumanization of the person. You're less than human. Jews were looked at by the Nazis as less than human. They were less than human. That's why it was okay to kill them whole scale. You're, you're killing just a bunch of stray dogs. Well, we kill stray dogs all the time. That's not a big deal. We don't usually kill stray humans. We consider that a grievous offense. But when you take a human and you make them less than human, well, that's okay then. We did that with African Americans. They're not human. They're property. You were taken from your homeland, brought over here, put on an auction block, and immediately went from being a human being created in the image of God to being a piece of property that I can treat however I want to. I can treat you like I can treat my mule. I can beat you and ultimately kill you and have no kind of moral repercussions because you're not a human. You're just a thing. Well, with the Samaritans and these people in this area, that's all they were to the Jews. You're not human. You're just a dog. You're worthless. That's why when Christ gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, when you read the story of the Good Samaritan, it was the Samaritan, the dog, that actually stepped up to the plate to take care of the poor person in the gutter because every other self-righteous religious elite looked at him and said, there ain't no way I'm touching that person. There's no way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to degrade myself to go down on their level and help them out. And it takes that less than human to be the greatest human of them all in that story. But that view of less than human is what will corrupt our image of what these people are. And when we start thinking of them in that way, we start thinking of them as less deserving of any kind of our care. And that's what the Jews did. So here you have this woman. She's in the northwest. She's in Tyre and Sidon. Okay, that region up there. Mostly it's kind of Gentile, Samaritan. She is actually a, as they describe her in Mark, she is a Syrophoenician, which means that she is a Phoenician, or that's another ancient way of calling someone a Canaanite. That's why Matthew calls her a Canaanite, a Canaan from the land of Cana. But she's Syro, she's Syrian. Okay, She actually lives by nation, as it says in Mark. She was from Syria. Well, that's just, just above the northern border of, of this Tyre and Sidon region. You go across into Syria, okay? So that's kind of her mishmash. I think it's extremely interesting that there is such precision given to her race and her nationality. He doesn't do that all the time. He's been through Tyre and Sidon before. He's been through Decapolis before. He talks about the Gadarean, which had the, had the, the demons that we talked about. And we have to go, okay, we assume that the man who was the wild Gadarene, as he's called, was a Gentile because nearly everybody in Decapolis was, okay? You have to assume that the, area, the people up here in Tyre and Sidon are mostly Samaritans or they're mostly Gentiles. They're Syrians. They're uh, Canaanites who were the native inhabitants of these lands, you have to assume those things in most cases. In this case, you don't have to assume. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, both of them give specific characteristics to her nationality. You go, well, why is that? Just because they want to flip that in there? Oh, by the way. I mean, you know, you, you do get in some places like with the Roman centurion. He was a Roman. He was a centurion. Going to probably bet he was a Gentile. Okay. Sometimes you'll get Cornelius being of the Italian band. Okay, well, there's a little more specificity. That's, that's a handful, people. A handful of people of the thousands of people that they came in contact with in the Gospels and Acts. You have a handful of these people who were listed specifically by their nationality and their race. Why is that? Because he's trying to teach a lesson. He's trying to teach a lesson about what these people and who these people are. He's not doing it just flippantly like, oh, I'll throw a racial card in there on this one. He's doing it to teach a lesson. When the Roman centurion comes and asks, he calls him a Roman centurion. Why? Because he says, I have not found so great a faith in Israel. Well, that, del that, that delineates right there. This guy wasn't of Israel. How do we know that? Well, he was a Roman centurion. Here, this woman is a Syrophoenician. She's a Canaanite woman by race, and she's Syrian by nationality. She's living in the area of Tyre and Sidon. 
Now, again, like we talked about, the Canaanites, okay, this is, this is old school stuff, okay? Canaanites, all right, and that's what Canaanites, uh, as they were saying, Phoenicians, okay? Those were all the, the kind of ancestor, ancestral inhabitants of these regions, okay? So any, you remember if we go all the way back to Genesis, when we were going through Genesis, you had the Arvites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the, the Gerbeshites, uh, all these other people that inhabited the land. You look over in Genesis chapter 10, and that's what you'll find, that Canaan... Okay, was a son of Ham, and he fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites. Why why can't we all be called by ites today? You know, that'd be so... The Smithites, the Kitchenites, the Kinsalites. That's That's much cooler. But these were in the area that the territory that Canaanites extended from Sidon, okay... In the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Lashai. I know y'all are all very familiar with those places, but these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. This is what, I bring that up though, because one of the areas they inhabited was Sidon, and that's where he's at right now. So from Genesis 10, some three, four, five thousand 5,000 years previously, you have the establishment of the Canaanites in this area, the sons of Canaan in this area. And here you have a Canaanite woman who is still there. Okay, There's still you know, the, the Palestinian people that inhabit some of these areas. That's what Palestinians, Philistines, Canaanites, all these are the kind of the national. The Palestinian is just a big word to encompass these other people that were there besides Jews. Okay? They're in these regions. So here you have this woman who is a Canaanite or one of the um, one of the inhabitants of the lands that were the non-Jewish inhabitants of this land. And you still have these people running around today. And there's still there's still ancestral heritage that goes on in these areas today. You still have descendants from Jews that you're encountering here today. You know, there's, there's people who will go over there and talk about how they have all these lineages and maybe they tied all the way back to their, their great-grandfather being one of Peter's cousins or something like You know, I mean, you can go over there and you never, it never ceases to amaze me when, like, Brother Austin and Sister Sharon and all them went over there and when Brother Charles went over there, you'll have them talking to people who will talk about their lineage and how they trace back to either you can have Palestinians or you can have Jews over there. That they're tracing them back to these long heritage people. I mean, we always question our heritage and where we came from, all right? We can't even find where we came from as Kinsals before the United States, okay? But you have all these people that can trace their lineages way back, and you can go through all that. But there's, like, people still living in this land that you can go, well, they are a Canaanite. They came from this person in Genesis chapter 10. I mean, I just think that's really neat, okay? But the other thing that's even even neater about that, this woman was not a Jew, she was not a Jew. And you say, well, why does that matter? Why are we talking race and why are we doing all that? Because this whole story is about race. The entire message of this story is wrapped up in the racial implications that are there. She was Syrophoenician. She was a Canaanite. She was not Jewish. She was not of the house of Israel, which is why Jesus responds the way he does. Okay? So it's extremely important that we tie these things together because these stories sometimes, I think we look at them like we were talking about. We look at them very abstract, very historical, very clinical, very unspiritual. You know, we kind of view them as these things that happen. And oh, you remember when Jesus talked to this woman and yeah, and then we kind of move on past it and we go to the cross and then we go to Ephesians 2 and then we forget about all this. But there was a very, very gospel Spirit of God driven reason why she was put here in this story. And so it's important that we grab that because there are there are things going on. And, and again, especially with what we've talked about recently about, you know, in, in tying all this in to being real followers of Christ all the time. And then in the previous chapter talking about challenging our leaders that if they're going to profess to be believers in Christ and profess to follow Christ, well, they have to do what Christ said too, okay? And holding them accountable just like John did to Herod. 
But then also us as a people making sure we're not just some religious traditionalists that are keeping some kind of tradition of a religious America alive, but that we're actually followers of Christ. That supersedes everything, okay? And so tying with all that, we have to be careful how we interact with people who don't look and act just like us. You know, there's some... There's, Lots of stuff. And I know this sounds very political, but the here's the thing. It's not political. It's gospel. Okay? It's not a political problem we're talking about. It's a gospel problem. When we talk about the people that inhabit these lands in the Middle East, I mean, through all of my lifetime and probably through nearly everybody else's lifetime in here, issues with people in the Middle East have been on the news at some point, probably daily. Okay, daily they were talking about whether it's Palestinians and Jews or whether it's Arabs or other people. And the reason why I go there is because there's a there's a a bad, bad habit of getting political in that and forgetting about the fact that these are real people who are children of God that inhabit these places. And going all the way back to what we were talking about in the beginning, it is not okay for a professor in Christ to say, oh, yes, I love Jesus and I believe in Jesus. And yes, I can't. You know what? The the way you fix the Middle East is just nuke it all to glass and make everything go away. That would solve all the problem spoken by someone who also professes to be a Christian on TV, who's also happens to be a politician. Those kind of statements don't they don't match. Because what you're saying there is you're okay with the wholesale slaughter of millions of people, including millions of people who were children of God. And you'd be okay with that? That's a traditional problem. That's a problem with letting the traditions and the social things that we have grown up with infect our hearts and our minds to where then we're okay saying that and somehow tying that in with us going to church on Sunday. That doesn't work. I mean, this is this is for a more local context. This goes back to people who would be on church on Sunday and clan rallies on Saturday night. Those two don't match. I don't even know how you can match them when you're burning a cross. How do you even how do you match those two? But they did. You say, well, what was the problem there? Well, you had someone who had a very traditional view. Okay, they let tradition overrun their heart and their mind, but still wanted to hold to a traditional view of Christ, too. It doesn't work that way. So it's important for us to grab this. It's important for us to really think about this. And I know it's like uncomfortable and nobody wants to talk about it. But these problems right here are where we're supposed to be different. These gospel issues right here are where we're supposed to be different. Don't go watch R-rated movies all you want to. I'm okay with that. But we have to be different on this too. We can't just say, oh, well, I keep a clean lifestyle and that's what makes me a Christian. But I'm okay with murder. I'm okay with hating these people when Christ would say, if you hate your brother, I'm not in you. If you hate your brother, you're committing murder. So it's important for us to kind of think on this. I know it's heavy, but it's, it's really important for us to think about this. Christ made multiple examples. Even though in here Christ goes, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think there's probably more debate and there's more trying to figure out what Christ was meaning by that. I think Christ was being very specific in the same vein of knowing exactly what was going to happen. He was being very express in what he had already told his apostles. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. He told his apostles when he sent them out, he said, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Only go to Israel. Okay. I want you to seek out Israelites who were lost. That was the, that was the, the, the kind of the MO when he sent them out. So here he said, hey, I'm just, this is, this is what it was supposed to be. God had said the Jew first and then the Gentile. That was the order that this was going to happen in. Okay. So he was just following the, the guidelines as far as what they were following. So that's what he said that I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, we know that's not necessarily true because he died for us all. Right. Okay. So it wasn't just that he was just sent for the Jews and somehow the Gentiles are going to get salvation by osmosis. Okay. Uh, he, he was sent to the Jews first in a ministerial gospel capacity. The Jewish apostles 
went to the Jews first. Paul even said, I, my habit is to go into every synagogue in any city that I go to, I go to the Jews first. Up until the point he got tired of them and said, you know what, if y'all going to keep trying to kill me, I'm washing my hands of you. I'll go to the Gentiles. They seem to like me, okay? So until they, you know, put him on a ship and take him to Rome. Anyway, but all of that being said, you have this precedent that God had set. I chose this people and I made a covenant promise to this people, okay? Not just the, not the spiritual side, very much the national side of it, okay? The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I made them a promise. promise. So it is fitting for me to go to them first, but not only. And what's important to grab that too. I mean, check out where Jesus is ministering at. Okay. He wasn't coming up to Tyre and Sidon just to find Jews. He healed all sorts of people. He didn't go to Decapolis and seek out a Jew that was possessed of a devil. He sought out a Gentile that was possessed of a devil and healed him. And then told that devil to go off and preach to all the other Gentiles out there. I mean, you, Jesus didn't hold by this rule in some kind of exclusive means that he only preached to Jews, that he only ever went to Jewish areas. I mean, he's already been... So we have to always be careful about what we read into when we're reading what Christ is saying, okay? He was giving the same guidelines that he had given to his apostles. It was supposed to be to the Jews first, not to the Gentiles. That's just, that's just how it was set up. But I think, again, as you look at that, he talks about it in, in the Old Testament. Luke reiterates these things in Luke chapter 4, where he talks about Elijah. And he says, you know, Elijah had been in the lands of Israel, and the famine and drought had been in Israel, and God didn't send Elijah to anyone in Israel. He sent him to Sarepta, which was a city in Sidon, again, in the same area we're at, all right, unto a woman that was a widow. And that's the widow that made the little cakes for him and that he, um, that he blessed there. You also have the lepers that were in Israel's day in Elisha's, the prophet's day, and none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Isn't it interesting how we keep going back to these Sidonese, Canaanite, Syrian people who are not Jews? That God has been through thousands of years ministering to these people the whole time. The reason that he that it keeps coming up like this is because, in my opinion, he's continuing to show I have a people everywhere. And yes, I have set it up that I'm only going to I only blessed Israel, the nation of Israel with my oracles. But I've been taking care of people with my prophets from Israel who were not of Israel for generations but if you notice in this picture, the, the, the racial distinction here of this woman that we, we have to grab onto. Remember, when he's, when he's talking about the, the going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it would be the equivalent of saying, I'm only going to go preach to the Asians. I'm not going to preach to the Russians. Okay, that's kind of the, if you want to kind of bring it into a new uh, racial thing here for us today, that would be kind of the idea of it. But we got to, again, we got to catch that that's a lot of times that lost sheep of house of Israel thing is exclusively thought of in spiritual terms and it was not meant in spiritual terms in this place he's speaking racially because he's looking at a gentile saying i'm not supposed to go to you i'm supposed to be going to the israelites spiritually she was born again i mean she i mean she's coming out i think it's interesting to me that she runs up to jesus and calls him lord and son of david and if you notice it's a lot of people who are calling him that who aren't the pharisees the sadducees and the religious elites of this world the ones who should know that phrase very very well won't say it it's these weird people these canaanites these gentile romans i mean all these people who who are expressing something that is within them that is god given how in the world would they how in the world would she know i mean she didn't come up to him and go oh well you know what i was just reading in isaiah and i see how you were you are the messiah she comes with that intrinsic faith that is given by God, just like when in the exact same vein, when John the Baptist is standing on the shores of the Jordan River and sees Jesus walking down, and says, behold, the son of God who taketh away the, the sins of the world, the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. That same faith-driven identification. This woman, when he's walking through town, she hears of him and knows him just by his actions in that case, but comes to him and says, Lord, Son of David, 
heal my daughter. And say, oh, well, she was just looking for a genie in a bottle. She had a problem. She knew he had done other healings. So she came and sought him out. Well, it is true. She did have a problem. She had heard of his other healings. But she sought him out not by a, not by a natural motivation. In the sense of not by just she, he was another charlatan who could throw a little snake oil on the issue. She sought him out for messianic power. Lord, identifying him as her sovereign, Lord, son of David, identifying him as her Messiah when she's not even a Jew. She wasn't a, she wasn't a daughter of David, and no, nor was she under the reign of David. Why would she say these things? Because she was recognizing him as her Lord and her Savior, as her king. And she had heard of the marvelous, wonderful things her king had done. And she came to beg at the feet of her king to say, Lord, will you please heal my daughter? Now, what's amazing is, is this racial outcast that no one else would have given the time of day to. This racial outcast dog of a, you know, Cana- uh, not Canadian, sorry, Canaanite, <laughs> sorry, Canaanite, all right. Canaanite, that's going to lose everybody. We're done. All right. It's been good talking to you. I'll go home now. All right. This dog of a Canaanite, Cyrenian person. I mean, it's, it's amazing that she is the picture that Jesus is holding up here of faith. Saying, what else does she have going for her? She doesn't have the oracles of God. She wasn't blessed in all these ways. In fact, she is more than likely impoverished in this region. What does she have going for her? I think there's two examples of hard-heartedness in this section of Scripture as well. One of them is the Pharisees, which is the most obvious. Uh, We just keep beating them like a a very, very dead horse. Um, But we see that in this chapter about their heart being hard and wicked and not toward God. And we see how if they were in this situation, there is no way they would have come within a thousand yards of this woman because if they would have they would have been unclean you know and that would have ruined their whole mo they'd have to gone and get out of the public eye for seven days and they would have to been you know smacked with hyssop and live birds and everything we've been talking about on leviticus you know i mean we, we, we would have all these things they would have had to have gotten done to them there's no way they're gonna be uh, now strike two there's no way that these people are going to be anywhere near this filthy dirty canaanite dog Also, they wouldn't have given her the time of day because they didn't view her as a human. She was just she was just a dog. Don't talk to me. Don't beg me for anything. How many of y'all love it when you're eating dinner and your dog's begging at the side of the table? Annoying thing in the world, isn't it? Most annoying thing in the world. Get out of here. Get out of my sight. Kick them. Throw them out the door. Lock them in a cage. Whatever it is, get them out of here. I don't want you begging at my table. And the table description is exactly the description that Jesus gives. He says, it is not fit, which makes you think this happened in that time too. It is not fit for the parents to give the children's bread, the children's food to the dogs first. Now, there is an interesting thing that in the Greek there, when they're talking about that, the word dog that Jesus used is not the same dog that the Pharisees would use. So there is something interesting about that. But he's not necessarily calling her a dog either. He is just giving an example. He's saying, it is not fit. You wouldn't do that in all practical sense. You don't take the food from the children, which the children here would be considered the Jews to whom he was sent first. Okay. The children here, you don't give their bread to the dogs. That's not done. When the dog's begging at the table, you don't go, oh, well, I'm sorry, Junior, but Fido needs a little bit of your, I'm going to give them your food first and then whatever's left over, you can have it. You don't do that. The Pharisees, though, would have been the children sitting at the table going, rightly so you don't do that because we deserve all that bread and no one else deserves this because we are the children. We are the chiefest of the children. We're the most deserving of everyone. No one else deserves anything except us. We are to be recipients of all blessings because we'll, I mean, just by our natural awesomeness. 
We are of Abraham's seed. We have the longest tassels. We pray the loudest on this corner. I mean, we do all this stuff. We are the greatest. We deserve all of this. The Pharisees' hard-heartedness is obvious. And I don't think there's really any one of us in here today, or at least I hope, that has that kind of hard-heartedness in them. This hard-heartedness flows from a wicked heart of unbelief that does not view God as merciful, omnipotent, and the most ultimate thing in their life. This is a proud view. This is a prideful hard-heartedness. This would be the kind of people who would say, I deserve everything, God. And when you don't give me what I deserve, I hold you in contempt because you're supposed to bless me. Look how awesome I am. You're supposed to give me things. Look at how hard I pray. You're supposed to make my life great. Look how much I go to church. Instead of understanding that God is ultimate, God is not your genie in a bottle. And... and It's ignoring your total depravity, even though this does reveal your total depravity. It reveals it without acknowledging it in your heart. See, when you view yourself in the right view, when you understand the depraved nature, our fallenness, our brokenness, our disobedience and everything, we don't go sit down at the table and go, give me what I deserve, God. We crawl up like this... Syria woman and go, I, I, I just, I can only take the scraps. I don't deserve to sit at the table. You think about the prodigal son situation. When the prodigal son came back, he didn't come back after he has been wallowing around with the hogs. He didn't come back to his daddy and go, well, daddy, I know I had, our, we had our rough times, but I've come to my senses now. Can you bring me my robe and my ring and let me sit back down to the table? When he came back, he came back with that God-given humility of understanding. He was a worthless, debaucherous son who had wrecked every good, gracious thing his father had ever given him. And he comes back crawling almost, going, Dad, I just want to be a servant in your household because being a servant is better than where I was. And it was the gracious omnipotent mercifulness of the father who said, no, no, my son, you come sit at the table, you take my ring and here's my robe and we're going to kill the fatted calf. The apostles were the ones that would have come up and said, I mean, the uh, Pharisees were the ones who would have come up and said, no, this is my table. I deserve this because I'm your son and you deserve to give me all these things. And so in that situation, though, you would have had that wicked hard heartedness that views this woman as less than a dog and not deserving of anything that we are most certainly deserving of. The second kind of view of hard hardness here is the one that's more subtle and the one that I think is more likely and probably most likely affects all of us at some point and especially affects us in the greater picture of the Christian world, especially in America. And that's the hard hardness of the apostles. And you say, oh, well, what hard hardness did the apostles have? The hard-heartedness of the apostles was that as they're walking with Jesus and this woman comes up and begging of them, they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, will you please send this woman away? Now, they, wouldn't have, they didn't necessarily come out like the, like the Pharisees would have said and gone, Jesus, don't you know this is a Syrian dog that's not deserving of the least of our blood? Get, this dog, get her away from us because she's filthy and nasty and we don't want her anywhere in our presence. But even so, the apostles were a little bit, they didn't like her being around. Get her away from us. She's annoying us. She's begging after you, but by extension, we're having to hear it. And that's a little bit annoying to us. That bothers us. Please tell her to go away, Jesus. That's the more subtle one that I think is probably affects all of us more on whatever level it may be. You know, here they're talking a big racial point of view, and I think that is still very much applicable today. Okay, there are still professing, believing Christians who still hold a very much a racial issue in the heart. You know, I mean, you hear plenty of them making whatever, if even if it's just racist jokes at the at the water cooler. Okay, whatever it may be, still holding this kind of tension that well, that person is still just not, just not there having a prejudice or an idea about a person based on their color and going, oh, well, if this person is here doing this thing, they must be up to no good or they must just these little things. Now, this is what I tell you. There's a lot of that's that's traditional. Okay. 
We were talking about that at the beginning of the chapter and talking about how our traditions will interfere with the commands of God. And there's a lot of that that is traditional, especially if you grow up in the South. There's a huge portion of that that's a traditional bias. There's a tradition to that. This passed from generation to generation that this is how you view certain people. This is how you view certain places. And this is how you interact with them. Black man walks through your neighborhood, a predominantly white neighborhood. The first thought is, well, you need to watch, you need to watch out. No, said just this week. No, no, no predisposition, just, just a black person walking through a predominantly white neighborhood. And the immediate reaction is, well, just be on the lookout. Why? That's a traditional heart issue. That's assuming something about this person just based off the color of their skin. There's nothing else. No predeterminers to that at all. He wasn't walking around with a flag on his back that said, you know, Crips or Bloods. He wasn't toting a 45. He wasn't. I mean, there's no, there nothing that was going on in that way. He was just a young black person walking through a predominantly white neighborhood. And that would be said by Christians and non-Christians alike. You say, well, what's so wrong with that? That is the problem that these apostles had. Apostles had the same issue. This is a Syrophoenician dog. Now, they're not going to come out and say that originally. They had a little softening of their heart by Jesus. They've been walking around with him and seeing him touching some nasty folks already that they would never touch. Okay, They've seen him do all these things. So they're not going to come out to Jesus right off like these bold, hard-hearted, wicked Pharisees would and go, don't touch this woman. She's nasty, filthy. They're at least going to be a little bit more reserved about it. But there's still that little thing in their heart going, "Mm, you know, really, we shouldn't really waste our time on her. And then the end... The end game of all of this. Jesus is going to go, if there's anything you should learn from this woman, if there's anything you should learn about this situation, is that she is the picture-perfect example of what a child of God should look like. A humble, full of humility full of the knowledge of the power, the mercy, and the grandeur of God, willing to just take the script. Nobody is going to say they would take the scraps. No just no normal human being, no you know, self-whatever, self-affirmed human being is going to say, oh yeah, sure, I'll sit in the dirt and I'll eat whatever falls off your table. I mean, anybody's going to go to Burger King before they do that. I mean, if you're talking about eating scraps, anyway. But anybody's going to go run to Burger King first before they ever did that. They're not going to. They're not going to just sit on the sit on the floor and eat what falls off your table. That would be so demeaning and so embarrassing. You never do that. This woman, though, was more than willing to do that to just get a little crumb from her master's table. Previously, there was people who would crawl on the ground just to squeeze by and grab the hem of his garment. I don't think I deserve it. I don't think I deserve an audience with you. I don't think that you deserve to talk to me. I need to see you eye to eye. You need to sit down with me at lunch. I'm just going to try to crawl on this dirty, nasty, you know, first century, disgusting ground, okay, where every other animal and everything else has been walking and doing everything that they do. I'm going to crawl on that just to grab the hem of your garment. Let me just tell you, there is no ounce of pride in that action. And that's all this woman did. She recognized her place in the greater cosmos as far as where her position was in relationship to God. She recognized her own self-worth in that sense. And beyond that, she showed an amazing, amazing amount of faith. And I want you to testify to that. I want you to kind of go back as we've been going through this. We've seen a couple of examples of it. But go back and look at the people Jesus praises for their faith. And look at the people he condemns for their lack of faith. I mean, just the last chapter, he's talking to, the, to, the, to his Jewish apostles. Those who were following him, they were in closest proximity to him. They've seen all of his power. And even they are like, mm, I don't know if you can do, handle this, Jesus. But then you have this random racial outcast who has no question about whether he can handle it. 
You have all the, you have Roman centurions who were pagan and atheist and, I mean, you, you, all manner of people who were not God followers. But by the faith that was given to them, they see Christ and fall down at his feet and beg him to please help them without questioning his power and his ability. So I think it's just very profound. Again, this was one of those one of those stories that as we've been going through this, it really hit me on a lot of different levels. And a lot of which I can't get fully expressed in the time. But if y'all just think on this story, think about what we've talked about, dig a little bit deeper in it. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Everybody gets uncomfortable. Anytime you talk about politics, race, any kind of thing dealing with your self-worth. I mean, that's all sorts of just hot button step on everybody's toes and get everybody squirming in their seats kind of stuff. Okay. And I apologize to all Canadian or Canadian descent people. Um, in the sound of my voice, okay? That was a slip-up. That was not even a, a, a funny slip-up, okay? But that all being said, I know these things are controversial, and I know these things make us squirm a little bit, but they, they are the things. They are the things that set us apart. That when you're standing at the water cooler with everybody else who's either making that racist joke or talking about okay with bombing people whole scale and, or hating your or whatever it may be, whatever the thing is that gets talked about, we're the ones that don't follow with that. We're the ones that don't blend in with that and like, oh yeah, that was a good one, huh? huh. No, that's that's not us. We're different. We're followers of Christ. We're called to a profound love. We're calling for to a f- profound respect for all humanity. I mean, we call ourselves pro-life, for goodness sake. And that's not pro-life, just babies in the womb. That's everyone. That's why we care from womb to tomb. We care for everyone in that way. We care for all people groups of every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe on the face of the earth. Why? Because we believe God has a people among every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe on the face of the earth. There's no people group who are somehow less deserving of our blessedness. We care of them all because that's how God sees it. And we profess to follow God. So may God bless us to do that.